Hello, it's Thursday, March the 9th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow. Joining me today, Checker Finn, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow, Chairman of Hoover's Task Force on K-12 Education, author of more than 400 articles and 20 books on primary and secondary schooling. And that's our topic today, education reform in the world of President Trump. Checker, thanks for joining us. Nice to be with you. Thanks a lot. Uh, any conversation with you has to begin with this question. How did you get the name Checker? That is a really boring story. Uh, <laughs> not almost worth telling. I'm Chester Jr. My father's nickname was always Check. What were they going to do with a little check? <laughs> so Check became Checker. And I've kept it. <laughs> well, I like it. It works for me. Uh, so Donald Trump and the world of education, let's begin with this question for you. Uh, we have seen uh, all sorts of uh, infighting going on over um, over the uh, uh, choosing of Trump cabinet members over the, the appointments process. Uh, rarely, James Mattis got through, I think, with one nay vote, but most of them got through somewhat bloodied, somewhat battered. Uh, um, the uh, Rex Tillers of the Secretary of State, I think he had something like 43 no votes against him. If you go back to Condoleezza Rice, I think she had something like 11 votes against her, George Schultz was appointed unanimously Secretary of State, but only one choice in the cabinet actually required the vice president coming in and casting the tie-breaking vote, and that was for the education secretary, Betsy DeVos. So, Chucker Finn, what is, it, what is it about Betsy DeVos that so deranges Democrats and also a couple of Republican senators who voted against her? Well, first of all, I think that you need to recognize that the Democrats in the Senate were looking for a scalp from the Trump uh, cabinet, and I think they would have been willing to settle for almost anyone. And in the end, they actually got the Secretary of Labor um, by getting the candidate to withdraw um, for cause and, and not have to vote on him at all. They, they needed a scalp. They would like to have had several. Uh, Betsy was an available candidate for a scalping because uh, her personal education reform track record, which is very considerable, is all in the school choice realm, which is to say charters and vouchers, which are uh, death words for uh, Democrats these days, unfortunately. Uh, never mind that uh, Democrats have been a lot of the oomph behind charter schools over the last 25 years. Uh, in Congress, this seemed like a good person to go after because she has little or no public school experience. And um, the teachers unions we're just frantic about this, and an awful lot of the Democrats and the Senate um, take their marching orders on education matters from the teacher unions. Mm -hmm. But two Republicans also voted against her, if I remember correctly. Yeah, they did. That's um, because, first of all, they're so-called moderate Republicans. Secondly, mm -hmm. they, too, have to contend with the teachers' unions in their states, which are not insignificant. And thirdly, I'm pretty sure— that uh, Mitch McConnell and the administration had a vote count that um, enabled them to say to these two Republicans, OK, you don't have to vote for her because she will she will be she will win anyway. Right. So um, one thing the House of Representatives has been doing very quietly without a lot of fanfare as it has been um, passing bills under the so-called Congressional Review Act. Uh, it's a tool that gives Republicans the power to cancel regulations issued in the final months of the Obama administration. Um, 
one, at least one Democrat has voted for 13 of the last 14 resolutions passed by the House under the CRA. There was only one resolution checker that was passed without a single Democratic vote, and I'm not sure if you're aware of what it was, but it was a resolution that overturned rules requiring states to develop a system to hold schools accountable under every Student Succeeds Act. So what says it that not a single Democrat could pony up to the bar and vote for, for, for that resolution? Well, first of all, a news update, that same resolution passed the Senate about an hour ago, um, 50 to 49, and the president has said he will sign it. So consider that CRA a done deal at this moment. Um, It has happened. Um, What it does is it erases the regulations for the Every Student Succeeds Act, which is the successor to No Child Left Behind, erases the regulations that were drafted by the Obama administration at the tail end of the Obama administration and basically says to DeVos and her team in the Trump administration, start over again with regulations. I mean, any large, complicated federal law, and this one is huge and complicated, um, is vague in a lot of ways. And a lot of that is intentional because it's vague because of compromises in Congress. And then if you're sitting in a state or a district and you want to know what you're actually supposed to do or expected to do or required to do or forbidden to do, uh, you look at the regulations, and the regulations come out of the executive branch. Um, And uh, the um, Obama administration had drafted regulations to go with the ESSA, as it's known, the Every Student Succeeds Act. And Mm -hmm. in a number of respects, those regulations um, pushed back against the spirit of the law, which is why... Uh, key lawmakers like uh, Senator Lamar Alexander were very, very critical of the draft regulations out of the Obama administration's education department. And so enough um, enough mo- Republicans, it's fair to say, were um, unhappy with the direction of those regulations that they wanted to undo them in a kind of a sweeping, abrupt, uh, um, um, rash, radical, if you will, uh, way. And that's what they've now done. Meanwhile, before this happened, Betsy DeVos said that the regulations were under review and that her agency was going to issue revisions of them. Actually, I think next week, a few days from now. And uh, so they were in the executive branch already working on revisions to the Obama administrations. Now Congress has swept them all away. Of course, the Democrats uh, uh, liked the Obama version of the regulations for the Every Student Succeeds Act. And they wanted to keep them because they're not going to get anything nearly as favorable to their worldview of education out of the current administration. And um, switching hats for just a second, though, because for my sins, I'm now vice chairman of the Maryland State Board of Education. And I have I have to say that any state is a little panicky right now over what rules to follow as as the states try to uh, develop their own implementation plans for the Every Student Succeeds Act. Now, now there's no clear rules for a number of, of sometimes subtle and sometimes actually very significant uh, decisions that states have to make. Right. Now, somebody listening to this podcast is going to ask the obvious question, why, Checker Finn, do we need a federal department of education? Why, just, why can't the 50 states just do their own thing? Well, for that, you'd have to go back to Jimmy Carter and the National Education Association and a big fight in the late 70s as to uh, about the creation of a federal department of education. It was a time when other new departments were getting created. As I recall, Department of Transportation was being created around the same time. Um, 
and there were other sort of late arrivals um, in the cabinet that hadn't been there, uh, let's say, under FDR or, um, or, or, or Dwight Eisenhower. Um, the actual creation of the Department of Education is widely understood to have been a payoff by Carter to the NEA, the National Education Association, for its uh, support in the 1976 election, the only election that Carter won. And um, I had the uh, uh, fascinating experience of uh, standing on the Senate floor, this is 77 or 78, uh, next to the late uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was my boss at the time, as Senator Moynihan argued against the uh, Jimmy Carter's Department of Education. Uh, Moynihan lost, Carter won. We've had a Department of Education now since then. There have been various kind of flurries of talk, mostly, by Republicans in Congress about abolishing it. But nobody I know thinks that's really going to happen. Uh, I think we're stuck with it for the foreseeable future. And, and, and by the way, what people really object to is the name of the department. I mean, they don't object in most cases to the federal aid to education that flows through the department, which is about 10% of the budgets of American public schools. So even if the department were done away with, I think the programs would continue and they just go under another agency. We'd probably go back to the old department of health, education and welfare. So to use a star Wars analogy, you would kill the death star, but the death star would blow up into a lot of pieces. Some of those pieces in the death star would be absorbed by other death stars, I suppose. And Something like still that. Continue existence. Uh, let me take you back to a moment to George W. Bush's 2007 state of the union and a woman who was sitting in the uh, first lady's box. Her name was Pamela battle. She was the mother of two boys who were attending private school thanks to the D.C. Opportunity Scholarships Program, which Bush signed into law in 2004. Uh, George W. Bush was not the first Republican to talk about school choice, and as we're seeing, Donald Trump is now talking school choice. He brought it up in his joint address to Congress checker. I believe he called it, uh, words, quote, the civil rights issue of our times. Uh, he then hopped on a plane a couple of days after that speech and went down to Orlando and did an event talking about school choice. Um, are you impressed with what the president has done so far? And where do you think he's going to go on this issue? How far can he get in, in this current atmosphere? Excellent question. Complicated question. Keep in mind, first of all, that there's a huge amount of school choice of various kinds underway around the country right now. Right. Um, uh, public school choice, charter school choice, virtual school choice, homeschooling. Uh, most of this has happened under state aegis um, and state decisions. Um, there's a big federal program now to support charter schools, and that exists several hundred million dollars a year. Um, right now, the only federal program, however, to support vouchers uh, is the one you alluded to, the one in the one in D.C., which is small but uh, but going strong. Though it's hugely controversial in the District of Columbia, I have every expectation that it will continue and probably grow under uh, Trump and the Republican Congress. What the federal government has so far never been willing to do is embark on a large voucher program to allow kids to go to private schools as opposed to, let's say, charter schools, which are, a, you know, a subspecies of public education. Um, and uh, that's that's what people I mean, the president's been very vague about what he meant by his 20 billion dollar school school choice initiative, which he talked about during the campaign. It is presumed that it's going to be mostly about private school attendance. Um, there's already a charter school program. They could put more money into the charter school program. Um, the efforts to get federal aid to 
people going to private schools at the elementary secondary level radically different, incidentally, from the higher education level where there's lots of federal aid uh, for people going to private colleges, religious colleges, you name it. But efforts to get federal aid for people going to private elementary secondary schools have so far always been defeated um, in Congress. Lamar Alexander tried to get one into the Every Student Succeeds Act, incidentally, and and didn't have the votes even in in his own committee um, to uh, bring that onto the Senate floor. And somebody brought up an amendment on the Senate floor and didn't have the votes to uh, to pass it. And that was with a Republican majority Senate, by the way. Uh, So... Uh, there, there's been a lot of pushback to federal aid to people going to private schools. Trump is going to try again. Um, according to everything we've seen and heard, it's going to be done through the tax code with some kind of a tax credit, probably for contributions to private, privately operated scholarship funds. Um, uh, interesting irony here. If it is done through the tax code, <clears throat> means it will be administered by the Treasury Department, not by, not by Betsy DeVos and the Education Department. Um, because all the tax stuff goes through the Treasury Department. Um, and, um, and nobody that I know on, on the Capitol Hill believes that a, a spending program, such as taking the Title I money or the special ed money and putting it into a voucher form, would pass the Congress. So they, I think they've concluded that the tax route is their only viable route. Um, and um, we'll see how this emerges. I'm guessing as part of a large multifaceted tax reform bill. Um, But I also have to say, I know a lot of people who are very strongly in favor of school choice who are very, very wary of the federal government getting into this in a big way. Um, They're really worried about the regulations that will follow and the constraints that it may put on private schools if this happens. Um, And and, and one other thing, a $20 billion program, uh, there's not enough capacity in American private education right now to absorb um, kids carrying that much money with them. Uh, right. So there'd have to be a, a supply response. if uh, To get anywhere near $20 billion, there'd have to be more private schools than there are today. And perhaps that'll happen over time uh, if, the, if the program actually is enacted. That's interesting. Is there perhaps an opportunity for the Trump administration to team up with the private sector on this to try to find charitable money out in the private sector and put that into a larger fund? Well, that would certainly appeal to uh, Betsy DeVos, whose own personal charities have been uh, very active doing that kind of thing uh, for a long time. And there are a number of private scholarship funds for private for uh, primary secondary schools going right now uh, with charitable dollars in them. And there are also a number of state programs right now that work through the state tax system. Uh, whereby corporations and individuals, this is true of the school in Florida that um, that uh, Trump visited, by the way. Um, a lot of the kids there benefit from a state program that operates through the state's tax system. And um, there are a bunch of those. I mean, there's more than a dozen of those programs around the country right now. Uh, there's certainly an opportunity if there were a federal program to team up with these existing state-based programs, most of which operate through private nonprofit organizations that actually manage the uh, scholarships or vouchers and which are certainly able to receive uh, private charitable dollars as well as, um, I mean, they are charitable dollars. They're just uh, tax credited against by, for the for the donor. Mm-hmm. If President Trump had passed along his uh, joint address to Congress to you before he had given it, if he had asked you to look at a draft version of it and you'd come across the section on education and you saw the phrase civil rights issue of our times, 
Would you have been comfortable with that language or you've changed it to something else? I'm fine with that language, but mostly because in where I live in the education reform world, that phrase is not new. That's been uh, been voiced for years by people like Howard Fuller, the architect of the Milwaukee Voucher Program, for example, um, and others, mostly African-Americans who are in favor of school choice and who have chosen to declare school choice to be, as Trump said, the civil rights issue of our time. He picked up right. that phrase from others. He didn't originate it, and I'm comfortable with it. Checker, I'm a, a, I'm a recovering speech writer, and in past life I wrote speeches for Pete Wilson, who was governor of California. I remember one year writing a state-of-the-state State speech for him where he was pushing a California version of the Opportunity Scholarships Program. And I remember writing down the words that I called uh, school choice a civil rights issue, and I said just as in a previous generation it was getting kids into schools, it's now getting kids out of schools that are not performing. So it's you're right. This is not exactly original thinking on Trump's part, but I am curious as to the idea of putting it into civil rights because when you do use the phrase civil rights, them as fighting words for some Democrats. Yes, and uh, that's undoubtedly partly why Trump used it, but it's also a way of associating yourself with the uh, with the uh, kids you most want to benefit from the program, who for the most part are poor and minority kids. I was reading an interview that you did, a conversation um, in a publication called The Line, and you were in a back and forth with John D.C. And those people listening to this are not from California, not familiar with Mr. D.C. He was, in a past life, the superintendent of the Los Angeles Unified School District. And something you said caught my eye, and I'd like you to, to expand on this. Uh, you said, and I quote, we also need a deeper conversation about, about social safety nets and yet to be documented youth in our schools. The value of a good education, in my opinion, is not relegated to just those currently protected by citizenship. Um. I, first of all, I think you may have been reading Deasy's words in the back and oh, forth gosh, rather, rather than mine. Um, we, he and I had an endless um, set of exchanges over that, uh, what, what you finally saw in, in print or on the screen. I think right. those were, I think those were Deasy's words that you're quoting back to me. Um, I had a good exchange with him and we did end up agreeing on a number of, on a number of issues. Um, the, um, and one of the issues where I agree with him is that um, if kids are in the United States, whether legally or not, we need to educate them and we need to uh, look out for their best interests. They are not here of their own volition. They're here because somebody uh, somebody brought them here. So, yeah, I associate myself with what are often called the dreamers. Um, and uh, I don't think um, kids should be uh, denied their opportunities in America just because somebody dragged them here when they were four months old. Mm -hmm. Now, in a past life, you were a high school teacher, correct? Well, it's, yes, many past lives ago, but yes. What did you teach? U.S. History. Well, it was called, the course was called Problems of American Democracy. It was 12th grade social studies at a um, suburban high school outside Boston. And I had the kids who were not going to go to college in my class. Right. Um, if you talk to Richard Reardon, the former mayor of Los Angeles, uh, speaking of the LAUSD, he, for years as the mayor of that city, was in constant fights with that education establishment, which you would call the blob. And he had a phrase for uh, the LES, uh, LAUSD's treatment of bad teachers. He called it the dance of the lemons. Yes. It's and what he was referring to was essentially the LES do, well, the, the school district will find a teacher who's not doing their job properly. And instead of replacing the teacher, they will just move the teacher to another part of the yes. school system. So yes. the lemons dance. Um, how do we cure the dance of the lemons? Is there a fix for that or are just states like California forever at the mercy of that? Oh, it's 
mostly goes to state laws involving tenure for teachers, which I think is broadly speaking a bad idea. I'm not really in favor of tenure for anybody except federal judges, I think. Um, I, the LAUSD has a particularly heinous um, policy that is both California law and collectively bargained within LAUSD, so it's in the teacher's contract. We've got a recent study at the Fordham Institute of essentially how hard it is to get rid of um, incompetent teachers after they get tenure, and there are a bunch of case studies of big cities, and Los Angeles fares among the worst of America's big cities in terms of the difficulty of um, shedding uh, incompetent or ineffective teachers after they get tenure. Uh, the Dance of the Lemons, um, which which uh, Reardon, uh, many people use that phrase, it involves shifting uh, bad teachers or, for that matter, school principals around among schools that um, so that they are inflicted on the schools that don't know any better or the ones that don't have enough clout to uh, keep them away. And uh, while the better-led schools or the schools with better connections into the school board, let's say, or the superintendent's office managed to shed the people they really want to shed by pawning them off on other schools. I mean, this is emblematic of the difficulties we have in the HR side of American public education. Uh, we don't recruit um, nearly enough of the best and the brightest. We recruit far too many people who are not um uh, all that well-educated or all that highly motivated, and we give them tenure at an early age, and we make it next to impossible to do anything about the ones that don't pan out. Mm -hmm. Now, could the Trump administration start a teacher's initiative? Could it use, besides talking about school choice, are there other forms of the bully pulpit it could use for education reform? Well, certainly could use the bully pulpit and, uh, and, and jawbone uh, this. It is, um, I think, almost entirely a state and federal matter, um, there have been some lawsuits, including in California, seeking to overturn these tenure laws in the name of the interests of kids. Um, if they make it into federal court, the Trump administration could certainly file an amicus brief on behalf of the plaintiffs, uh, arguing uh, why the court should find these tenure laws um, um, not in the best interest of children under the Equal Protection Clause or whatever uh, appropriate constitutional um, uh, provision. Um, they certainly could create, if they want to, a incentive program for states that, let's say, gives states money if they loosen their tenure requirements. They could also, though they won't do this, put conditions on the receipt of existing federal money um, that say, in effect, uh, we won't give you federal money unless you loosen your tenure requirements. That, however, would be regarded as heavy-handed federal intervention in state management of the schools and uh, would bring its own protests from the right, as well as from the left, by the way. Right. Uh, Secretary DeVos, if you were advising Secretary DeVos on how she should be spending her time, what would you have her do? <laughs> well, she's going to have to write some new regulations. There's no doubt right. about that to replace the ones that Congress has wiped away. Uh, that's that's one thing. Uh, she needs to reform her Office for Civil Rights, which under Obama started sticking its nose into everything under the sun, not just bathrooms, but also school discipline policies in a, in a, in a, in a very obnoxious and intrusive and I think wrongheaded way. Uh, so she needs to do some more kind of deregulating and containing of federal zealots within her own agency. That would be one thing. 
Uh, she needs to write regulations. She needs to use her own bully pulpit, um, but not just for school choice, but for better education for all kids, what, no matter what kind of schools they go to. Um, she does, in fact, need to take um, American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten up on the invitation to go visit some public schools with Randy. Mm -hmm. um, and um, some district schools, some charter schools. She needs to look closely at the existing charter school program to see how that could be improved in the name of uh, better education. Um, and she needs to uh, work real hard on some of the unsexy ways in which the Department of Education is really useful to the country, which is uh, like uh, data gathering and student assessment and educational research. Uh, because the more we empower states and districts to make their own decisions, the more the more uh, good data and reliable research they will benefit from having at their at their disposal. And uh, she'd do a really great favor for the country long term if she'd beef up those parts of her department while reining in some of the mischievous parts. So it sounds like what you're suggesting is in terms of her dealing with what, what you call the blob. Why don't you actually spend a minute explaining what you mean when you say <laughs> the blob? Well, the blob, I think... Uh, at this point, I don't remember whether I coined that phrase or Bill Bennett coined that phrase when he was Secretary of Education and I worked with him at the Department of Education. Yeah, the sounds same, like a Bill Bennett word. I think it might have been a Bennett coinage. Uh, anyway, it, 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 it fell into fairly widespread use. Uh, the blob is what used to be called the education establishment. It is the um, millions of people and hundreds and hundreds of organizations that basically uh, work in and run and control public education as we have known it for the last 50 years. And they certainly include the teacher unions, but they also include the administrators organizations and the school board associations and the janitor associations and the textbook publishers and uh, um, the teachers colleges, the ed schools and uh, a whole lot of, of, um, uh, many, many billions of dollars and many, many millions of people who basically have a vested interest in keeping the education system of America pretty much the way it is and has been, um, but preferably extracting more money from the taxpayers so that they can do more of the same, whether that's effective or not. Um, and uh, so the, the blob is the establishment that uh, opposes uh, reforms that might benefit kids. Right. It strikes me there are three components to the blob. One is a financial component. I'm sitting here in California where the California Teachers Association has for decades now been in the business of buying Democratic lawmakers. They underwrite their campaign, so they have friends in the legislature. It's a wonderful, cozy existence. And if you're a lawmaker and you run afoul of the CTA, you can expect an aggressive PR campaign against you and you're against teachers and your life becomes exceedingly difficult. So there's a financial component to this. Uh, I would suggest that there is also a policy component that if you want to begin reforming the system, they will push back. But I suggest also, Checker, that there's a, something of a mindset issue and that if you do push the education establishment, you're quickly caught up in this discussion about the nobility of what we do. How dare you tell teachers how to do their job? You have no idea what it is to be in a classroom. And this is something I think that DeVos ran into because she is not, she does not have education experience in her background. So if she is going to tangle with the blob, try to approach the blob, not fight the blob necessarily, but try to work with the blob. How aggressive does she have to be and how much does she have to try to romance the blob? That's an excellent question. And the answer is yes, she's going to have to do some of both. I mean, the, uh, right. the intellectual part is partly just professional arrogance saying that we are certified members of this profession and you're not. But part of it is actually a profession that is awash in bad ideas and ineffective practices and dubious research. 
So it actually, you, you could argue that, that in addition to the arrogance of we are professionals and you're not, you could argue that they are worshiping the wrong gods when it comes to what's good for kids. Uh, and um, that's really hard to penetrate. And a lot of education secretaries and others have tried. And uh, um, the progress is slow. I mean, I think there has been progress, incidentally, over the last uh, 30, 40 years uh, in making some important changes in American education. Um, and I'm sure there will be some more under the under Betsy and uh, her efforts. But she's um, she can't just romance the blob or she'd have to uh, pray to its gods. Uh, but she has to acknowledge that she understands what drives them and why they're thinking better research might disprove some of their bad ideas, at least to a, to an objective third party. And um, she's got to she's got to push real hard for changes that the blob doesn't want, even as she is um, respectfully talking to them about uh, whatever things they can agree on. I'm going to get you out of this conversation by asking you a bit of a tricky question, not to look in your crystal ball and tell me what's going to happen in education reform, because uh, this is an administration that's a work in progress and every day seems to bring a new storyline. Um, I'd just like to know, as somebody who studies education reform, uh, what benchmarks you have laid out for success in this administration? Well, let me repeat that most of the action is at the state and local level, and we shouldn't judge everything that happens to American education over the next um, four or eight years by by what this administration does or doesn't do at the federal level. I, I, I think that's important. I mean, again, the federal dollars are only about 10 cents worth of the school dollar in America, and uh, the other 90 percent, and most of the decisions come from state and local sources. I think that um, whether they're able to... Um, curtail mischief, uh, whether they are able to foster some more school choice, uh, and ultimately whether they are able to um, help bring about a future in which more kids are learning more, uh, which is the fundamental problem in American education. It's not the mechanical and structural stuff. It's the fact that uh, uh, fewer than 40% uh, of our kids are on track for a successful college and career. And if you look at uh, Poor and minority kids, the percentage who are on track is a lot smaller than 40. So that's the ultimate metric for what we're doing in American education reform. And I hope the feds are able to contribute to some some progress toward it. Right. Um, it also sounds like 2018 is going to be a very important year for education in America because you're going to have a lot of Republican governors either leaving office or playing defense trying to get reelected. For example, you work with the state of Maryland. You have a Republican governor there, uh, Larry Hogan, yep. who's, who's one of the governors that will be up in 2018. Yep. Um, are, are you already keeping an eye on 2018? Well, Hogan is. <laughs> There's no <laughs> doubt about that. He's currently very right. popular in Maryland, and he's got the Democrats in Maryland kind of flummoxed. Uh, as to how to uh, how to how to pull him down, uh, but keep in mind that the 2016 election, um, though we mostly thought about the Trump effect, but it it had a huge positive effect for Republicans in terms of state offices, state legislatures, right. places like Kentucky that hadn't had a Republican legislature for anybody could remember how long, uh, is on the verge of passing a charter school law because they finally got an alignment in their legislature that might make it possible. So yeah. 18 is going to be important, but 16 was important. 
Right, but in 18, you have uh, Democrats trying to go after Republicans have 33 governors right now, and I think they control something like 66 out of 99 state legislatures. So if you're the blob, the education establishment, you have a Congress that is not friendly to you, you have an administration that is not necessarily friendly to you, but you might look around the country and see a lot of opportunities to start picking off governors and start making inroads in those and, legislatures to protect what you have. And the blob is very good at looking all around the country and seizing every opportunity, and that's why the reform community need to be vigilant at uh, watching these things and pushing back where necessary. Chuck Finn, I enjoyed the conversation. I hope you'll come back soon and we can talk more about what's going on in education reform. I'll look forward to it. Thanks for the opportunity. My pleasure. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy choices confronting America's 45th president. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, I encourage you to sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which sends the best work of Hoover fellows, including Checker Finn, straight to your inbox. You can also find the Hoover Institution on Facebook and on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care and thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.